Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter, Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida, where we often talk like we did last week about native wildlife in Florida, dolphins last week, sea turtles, manatee, alligators. But we're talking about hippos this week, Craig? <laughs> well, one hippo in particular, Lou the Hippo, uh, who is uh, a resident of Homosassa Springs State Park, State Wildlife Park, mm. and they have a wildlife walk there. And if you walk around, you can see panthers, you can see manatees, you can see, you know, roseate spoonbills, and they have a hippo, Lou the Hippo, who was a, a featured player in various Ivan Tours TV, TV productions. Remember, we talked about TV mm-hmm. uh, shows set in Florida uh, on another episode and uh, wound up at this roadside zoo that was taken <laughs> over by the state for a park. And, you know, you're not supposed to have exotic wildlife in state parks. And so people were worried that Lou was going to get evicted. So they petitioned the state to let this Lou stay. It's a great story. And so go- then Governor Lawton Charles officially made Lou the Hippo an honorary citizen of Florida just so the hippo could stay <laughs> at Homosassa Springs. And Lou is like in his 60s now, which is much, that's older than you. most hippos get to be in the wild. I'm sure. But he's still a huge celebrity. People come from all over to see him. The big caution is you, you should not stand in the splatter zone. Yes, <laughs> and the less and said about that, the better. <laughs> you can figure that out for yourselves. We talk about Lou the hippo because in Craig's most recent column for the Florida Phoenix, floridaphoenix.com, it was all about state parks. And Lou was the device you use to uh, talk more broadly about the Florida state park system. Yeah, Florida state parks are, are absolutely one of the best things about Florida. I always mention mm-hmm. when people ask, yes. what do you like about Florida? Yes. They've won Four national awards and no other state park system has has that honor. And uh, I interviewed the guy who until until about a month ago was in charge of them. Eric Draper. He was the Florida State Parks director. He'll be a guest on an upcoming Mm -hmm. episode, by the way. Uh, We've got him lined up to talk some more about the state parks. Um, But I wanted to use him to sort of get into how they were politically manipulated uh, during the Rick Scott administration. There are all kinds of really bad headlines really bad ideas from the Scott administration Mm -hmm. about how to make more money from the parks rather than just letting the parks be parks. Yeah. And, uh, um, uh, I mean, it's an amazing, just an amazing story. And, uh, and, but the thing that the, is that the DeSantis administration is ignoring and not taking advantage of out there or not doing anything about is we're losing some of these parks to climate change. You know, they're washing away honeymoon islands, washing away Tomoka on uh, Ormond beach, washing away as seas and sea levels rise. And plus, they're facing all kinds of other ramifications of climate change, like stronger hurricanes that messed up a bunch of state parks in the in the panhandle with Hurricane Michael and not just the ones on the beach, but inland ones like yeah. uh, uh, like Cavern, like Mariana Caverns State Park really it wiped out, I think, about 90 percent of the trees there. The governor wants to spend money on adapting to climate change, but he doesn't want to do anything to combat mm-hmm. climate change and try and get us all fossil right. fuels, which just drives me nuts. So. Yeah. Build more stuff, more walls, more concrete, more steel, more rebar, more seawalls, more pipes, mm-hmm. more drainage, as opposed to cutting it off at the source. And we talked more about that on last week's episode. And right by me and Amelia Island, Little Talbot Island State Park, Amelia Island State mm-hmm. Park, Fort Clinch State Park, Big Talbot Island State Park, all border the water and all over recent years have had significant uh, dune erosion and beach erosion mm-hmm. issues, not from hurricanes, because we don't haven't had much hurricane damage here, but just nor'easters. We had a yeah. nor'easter in the fall of, of 2021 and then one in the late summer of 
2020 that gouged huge chunks mm-hmm. out of the existing beach and dune uh, at Little Talbot and, and Big Talbot. And that, those are just storms. They aren't even hurricanes, but that's you know right. related to climate change, sea level rise, and and it's not going to get any better. And your story, which very briefly highlighted Rick Scott's, uh, an adjective escapes me for. Well, I described his it as, attempt I said to that, prostitute. I, the, I, the state I said parks. they were they were they were gonna they squeezed it and manipulated it like it was a fresh pack of silly putty. Basically, yeah, you, and you all of the all of the ideas were bad, and they all came to nothing. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, yeah. I mean, you got to go to Craig's article, FloridaPhoenix.com. It's linked to in the in the show notes some of the ideas that Rick Scott had, and that was before I was a, a resident of Florida, or right about the time I, I moved here. So I wasn't as as tied into the issues as I am now. Uh, astonishing. I'll just say astonishing. Yeah. Which takes one us of, to it. One of, yeah. one of them, a, news, a newspaper columnist, <laughs> called it the worst idea in the history of the world. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, that, that, that covers some ground. So from astonishing <laughs> on the bad end to astonishing on the good end. <laughs> yes. Frank Lloyd Wright in Lakeland, Florida. What in the like, world? This is one of those. Uh, it, okay. So this is this is our first podcast of, of 2022. And I want people to do what I do, which is drop a Florida bucket list. Things you want to go see, mm-hmm. things you want to go do, experiences you want to have in the new year. And one of them, if you haven't been there before, one of them should be to go to Florida Southern College in Lakeland, which has the largest collection of Frank Lloyd Wright designed buildings and structures in the world. Yeah. And we have a guest here who's going to tell us all about it and how that all came to be. Yep. Jack Coffey is the manager of tours and educational programs at the Frank Lloyd Wright Visitor Center there on the campus of Florida Southern College in Lakeland. You can tour the buildings. You can go to the visitor center. You can see for yourself this incredible collection of architecture. Find the visitor center on Facebook at Frank Lloyd Wright at Florida Southern College. And again, our guest now, Jack Coffey. Just the idea of Frank Lloyd Wright in Polk County is really intriguing. How did this great architect, uh, who was known for wearing capes, wind up in Lakeland? Great question. So it's actually a really interesting story. Wright had no prior connection to uh, Florida, even as a state, before the college commission. The college, in particular, the college's president, Florida Southern College's president, uh, Dr. Ludd Spivey, reached out to Frank Lloyd Wright in 1938 with a request for, as he put it, a great education temple. Dr. Spivey had got the idea to commission Frank Lloyd Wright from Falling Water, the famous home in southwestern Pennsylvania that Wright had just completed the year before, 1937. He basically felt that Frank Lloyd Wright could redesign the campus as a school of the future, a college of tomorrow, which was very much the trend for the era, the kind of zeitgeist of the era. Everyone was looking to the future and all the bold things that the future would bring. Dr. Spivey was doing this not because Florida Southern was in a state of prosperity or immense success. Florida Southern, like so many other private colleges, was really struggling because of the Great Depression. Commissioning right was a was a gamble to try and get the school back on the map, to re-cement it into the fabric of American higher education after the Depression had decimated its finances, and to really ensure the school's prosperity in the long term. 
he must have been Frank Lloyd Wright must have gotten dozens of these uh, invitations and maybe even hundreds at that point. Why would he accept one from a, a, a college he'd probably never heard of down in Florida, a state he'd never been to? So commissions like this were actually far rarer for Frank Lloyd Wright than you would expect. Wright, the vast majority of Frank Lloyd Wright's career was in private single family homes, public commissions, things like shops, corporate headquarters, churches, government buildings were much rarer, much fewer and far between. Uh, This was the first time that Wright had received the an open invitation from anyone to say, hey, we want you to completely redesign an entire college campus for us. It was a project of a very substantial scope and scale. So Wright jumped on it. Uh, he had just a single meeting with Dr. Spivey up at his personal estate, Taliesin, in Spring Green, Wisconsin. And he was he was in. Wright was really, how should I phrase this? He was looking for a decent architectural commission, but at the same time, the opportunity to bring his architecture into a new realm, into a new field, was something that excited him tremendously. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, Craig, because Lakeland is a little off the beaten path in 2021, 2022, let alone 1938. I mean, 80 years ago, (laughs) to say it was an architectural backwater would would be to do a disservice to backwaters and uh you you mentioned that frank lloyd wright is from wisconsin as am i Uh, so i i know a little bit about frank lloyd wright and his prominence because in the midwest where he's from and so many taliesin you talk about you, you mentioned falling waters in pennsylvania everyone's seen that whether they know it or not it's that modernist building set into the the hilltop with the trees all around it and the waterfall going through it a lot of Uh, residential buildings, like you mentioned, in Chicago. For folks who have only heard the name Frank Lloyd Wright but don't recognize his prominence, take us back to the the 30s and what level of, uh, no other way to put it, fame he had achieved as, as an architect of all things. When Wright was commissioned for this project in January 1938, that's when Dr. Spivey sent out the first telegram, Wright had just been on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, because of falling water. Mm-hmm. Granted, he was actually coming out of a, Wright was coming out of a major career slump. The 1920s, the roaring 20s that we think of, you know, Wright must have been getting commissions like crazy because it was the roaring 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually got very little work. Uh, some scandals in his personal life had become public knowledge, and that certainly hurt his career, but also uh, the rise of kind of modernism and the prominence of true architectural modernism was starting to make a lot of Wright's ideas seem a little bit uh, from his earlier work in the 1910s, you know, when he was designing all those wonderful homes in Chicago, he was beginning to make his work seem a little bit in the past. Wright Hmm. continued evolving during that time, but it was really falling water that launched him into a career renaissance of sorts. However, when Spivey is commissioning Wright, so many other major commissions were ending up on Wright's drafting table. And the 1940s going into especially the 1950s would be uh, when Wright was in his 80s age-wise was when uh, he was at his 
highest levels of fame, prestige, and when the vast majority of his later career commissions were getting built. So did the commission from Florida Southern help to turn things around for him? It was really falling water. Falling water Mm -hmm. was the big breakthrough for Wright that really, once again, began that renaissance of of sorts in his career. The renaissance. Yes. It's funny, you, you you gloss over a number of interesting things. And, and for people interested in learning more about Frank Lloyd Wright, his personal scandals are outrageous. Oh my gosh. Yes. A womanizer, <laughs> a scamp, uh, horrifically vain, uh, utter mama's boy, total uh, borderline sociopath in terms of just using people for his own, uh, own purposes, uh, a brilliant architect, obviously, uh, and almost equally abhorrent person. And, and there's volumes of, of writing on on Frank Lloyd Wright, the person. How much time did he spend there in Lakeland uh, planning the commission, seeing it through, working on it, uh, or, or seeing its completion? Frank Lloyd Wright first came down May 8th, 1938. He was about a month away from his 71st birthday. He spent about three days on the campus just surveying the land that he had to work with. The college's land was mostly open. They had just relocated to Lakeland in 1921 from Clearwater, which uh, their prior campus was basically destroyed by a hurricane. So they had relocated to Lakeland. Uh, Mm -hmm. They had 67 acres, just eight buildings on that 67 acres. It was filled to the brim with orange trees. When the school purchased Mm -hmm. the land, it was a defunct citrus grove. So it's this, it's a gently sloping hillside site about 70 feet from the northern end of the property to the southern end. We border a good-sized natural lake, one of Lakeland's over Mm -hmm. 30 named natural lakes, Lake Hollingsworth, immediately to the south. And that land is still filled to the brim with citrus trees. So Wright lays all that out over three days. He spent a few other days touring around central Florida. He had never set foot in the state of Florida prior. Mm -hmm. So we know he went out to the Gulf Coast Beach. He went through Tampa. He visited Bach Tower Gardens, Cypress Mm. Gardens, went over to Orlando, and then journeyed back up north to Wisconsin. He would return back in October with a full campus master plan in tow. Over the next 20 years, this was the longest lasting commission of Wright's entire career. He worked on this actively up until 1958, but really up until he passed away at the age of 91 in 1959. During that time span, he would visit 12 additional times, usually staying down here for one to two weeks. Wright was far too busy as an architect with his firms, depending on the time of the year, being either up in Wisconsin or down in Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona, where Taliesin West is, to be down here, you know, full time. But he would visit rather frequently for one of his projects to check in and to give input. He had a number of his apprentices who would come down and spend time down here as well, helping out at various points when the college needed it. I don't know if there are any records of this, but how did people in Lakeland regard him when he when he arrived? He's sort of an eccentric figure, uh, <laughs> to um, say the least, especially for Lakeland uh, in the 1930s, late 1930s. Right. There isn't a lot of documentation regarding Right, you know, just interacting with the city, interacting with the locals. We do know that whenever he did physically visit, Dr. Spivey usually had him give a speech and advertised mm-hmm. it to the local area mm-hmm. to kind of draw people in, uh, let them know that the project was here. 
And Wright certainly drew the crowds. A lot of people journeyed to the campus just to see the man himself Mm -hmm. uh, and to listen to what he had to say. Wright very much was a celebrity of his day and of his age. He was a household name, so he certainly brought in the crowds. Beyond that, once again, we know that he do know that he did journey throughout the local region. He saw a lot of Central Florida throughout his various visits down here. He visited Wikiwachi Springs, Silver Springs. Mm -hmm. He sat down to watch the Ten Commandments in the Polk Theater. Uh, Here in Lakeland, the historic (laughs) folk theater. But Uh beyond that, there's not a lot of documentation of him interacting, you know, with the locals Mm -hmm. and what the locals really regarded him as, as this, you know, monumental character coming into, as you said, off the beaten path Lakeland. He did all the touristy stuff. Yeah, Lock Tower Gardens in and way. Silver Springs. Yeah, absolutely. Wiki Wachi. Yeah. <laughs> Cypress Gardens. I wonder if the mermaids waved at him. Yeah. <laughs> hey, who's that guy in the cave? <laughs> all the all the usual stuff that uh, Wisconsinites so what, traveling to Florida. What do. was the first what was the first building that he built there on the campus? So the very first building to be built was the Annie Pfeiffer Chapel. The Pfeiffer Chapel was constructed 1938 to 41. It turned 80 years old earlier this year. Oh, wow. uh, and it's our most celebrated building to this day. It's kind of the most recognizable building from not just the camp, the Frank Lloyd Wright campus project, but just the campus as a whole. And it's a very interesting design with this large, very open chapel with this uh, landmark tower on top. That tower has kind of these almost origami shapes lining it on either side with a steel rack that goes across the top that's decorative. There are vines hidden in those kind of, once again, bow tie origami shapes going up that were meant to cover the steel rack at the top like a garden trellis. It's the tallest building of Wright's project as well. And it was meant to be the one vertical landmark that brought his whole plan together with this kind of unifying landmark of nature and architecture together. Was there a particular theme that he was striving for in his designs for for the campus? There were a number of themes. This is easily one of Wright's most complex projects from throughout his whole career. Once again, we have 13 Wright-designed buildings here. It's the largest concentration of his work for any one site or one Mm -hmm. client. But all of those buildings are very much parts of a whole rather than individual entities. And there's so many different elements that tie them all together. In particular, though, there's one overarching theme. Wright himself has a quote that kind of best described what he was going for. Well, there's a couple quotes, but the one that uh, comes to mind uh, during a speech he gave on the campus in 1950, he said, and I quote, these campus buildings have been in a continuous state of growth since their inception. Their outdoor garden character is meant to be a reflection of Florida at its floral best. He was very firm with that idea that he felt Florida, this is kind of pre-Disney, Florida gardens defined a lot of not just the attractions, but just the landscape of the state as a whole. And that's really what Wright took away from, in his mind, what Florida was all about, was about flowers, gardens everywhere that you could see. So he very much was trying to design a garden college, a campus that felt almost park-like in its essence. So there's a lot of flower boxes that he designed throughout the grounds. There's a lot of areas for plantings to grow. So he's really going for that 
garden campus feel. He wanted the Orange Grove to remain as much as possible as well. The campus was meant to feel almost buried in the citrus grove, given uh, the state of Florida citrus industry today. Unfortunately, those trees uh, all died off in the 1970s. But he wanted the campus to feel buried in the citrus grove, flowers everywhere. And the buildings also, once again, they interact with the hillside. He had another quote, and I quote, every building is out of the ground and into the light, a child of the sun. Belonging as a tree belongs. And the buildings submerge themselves partially into the hillside and then grow outward organically as you grow down, as you go downhill. Falling Waters is is famous for the same sort of architecture built into uh, a hillside, a rocky hillside where the house is formed around rocky outcroppings and a waterfall goes right through it. So that idea of bringing nature indoors or bringing indoors out and that renaissance you talk about certainly does continue there on on the campus so how are these buildings maintained today as as they you know approach 50 60 70 years into their uh, lifespan our buildings they are very maintenance intensive they do require a lot of care a lot of preservation and restoration work Wright's architecture is kind of known for its problems, unfortunately, in today's (laughs) day and age. They have a lot of maintenance issues. And that's because Wright's ideas were always very advanced. Wright was never satisfied with just doing tried and true things over and over and over again. He was always trying to push the boundaries of his craft. So his architecture was pretty much always experimental by nature. That means that Sometimes in his work, you have ideas that he's trying out and they just don't pan out uh, exactly as he wanted. But most of the time, when these problems arise, it's because technology, the technology of the era, isn't, wasn't up to par with yeah. Wright's idea. His idea was too advanced for what the technology of the era could achieve. We do have some problems of that nature that we're working to address. The college employs one of the best restoration architects in the country. His name's Jeff Baker. He's in charge of the restoration work on Monticello, Jefferson's Monticello, Mm -hmm. Jefferson's University of Virginia quad and Poplar Forest as well. He's done work on uh, George Washington's Mount Vernon. He's currently involved in restoring the Emily Dickinson homestead. His expertise has been invaluable to restoring and preserving these buildings The campus was designated, Wright's campus was designated a National Historic Landmark in 2015. So that provides a lot of protection and a lot of resources for restoring and preserving the buildings as well. They have their needs, they have their problems, but the college is working on addressing those needs Mm -hmm. and making sure the buildings get the care that they need in today's day. When he was building these, did he use local contractors or did he bring outside people who were the the craftsmen, the the carpenters, the brick masons, the concrete guys from from outside? Once again, the college's president who commissioned Frank Lloyd Wright, his name was once again, Dr. Lud Spivey. Spivey was a fascinating, fascinating man. And as an educator, he was very ahead of his time in terms of his educational ideas. One of those ideas that today is commonplace in higher education, but was very controversial and heavily debated at the time. It was a new idea, was that of experiential education, learning by doing. 
learning by experience as opposed to kind of a lecture hall format. Also, the school's largest degree field in terms of enrollment in that time was carpentry. Hmm. So I think I see where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. So Dr. Spivey started up a work study program, as it was referred to, when the Wright Campus project started. Students could volunteer time out of their week. And based on the amount of time that they pledged, they would receive a very generous scholarship in proportion to the time that they pledged working on the buildings. Dr. Spivey, you know, he's not, he does not have a lot of resources. The college, once again, is struggling. He doesn't have a lot of funds at his disposal. So he figured not only is this a learning opportunity for those students, but he can have kind of a student support crew and auxiliary to the local contractors, the local construction crews he would hire. So many students signed up for that in the Depression years. Spivey did not need to hire any formal construction crew whatsoever. The first five right design buildings and other various elements around them were built entirely by students working for their education with industrial arts professors overseeing them. Not a single construction, uh, professional construction laborer or contractor was involved up until kind of the post-war era. Then, uh, you know, enrollment in that program did decline. And so local contractors and local craftsmen were brought in to continue the work. And in the cases of when there were things that the students couldn't assemble, like glasswork, for instance, local craftsmen were always, always used. So you mentioned about Wright's vision being so for, so ahead of its time. Is there a story about the fountain on campus that uh, he the designed? Water dome. Yes. <laughs> uh, so the water dome is the largest Frank Lloyd Wright designed fountain ever constructed. Uh, if you visit the campus, it's a circular pool of water, 160 feet across, and Wright intended it to the fountain to function as a full dome of water rising up 45 feet in the air. The technology just wasn't available at the time to realize that. Dr. Spivey did some tests, he did some research, and all he could really serve to do was to put a single pipe in the middle that shot water up about 11 feet, and then that water (laughs) kind of lazily umbrellaed out. Wright thought it was, yeah, Wright thought it was pretty lame. So he had that just (laughs) taken out and, and had the feature just left as a circular reflecting pool with the idea that someone someday could come along and figure out how to make it work as he intended. The fountain element itself, the actual dome feature, was realized as part of our ongoing campus restoration efforts in 2007. So it probably took longer than Wright thought it would, but the dome does function as he intended today. It's in order to conserve water, though, it does generate a lot of mist at full height. Mm. So uh, in order to conserve water, it's only run at that full height one day out of a year to celebrate the graduating senior class. Most days it's run at a it's run at a much lower 30 percent height instead, which is still beautiful and still uh, closer to what Wright had in mind. Amazing. So how many so how many years between the design and the, the actual construction? While the pool itself was installed in 1948, Wright laid out the water dome 
from the very beginning, a decade prior, 1938, and then 2007 was when it was finally brought to life. Wow. <laughs> wow. Great gratification there. <laughs> yeah. You talked about the, the dire straits the college was in at the time it reached out to Frank Lloyd Wright. And it's still, a, it's a small campus, small enrollment, private school. What benefit in enrollment, visibility, financial footing did this gambit to have Frank Lloyd Wright come and redesign the campus have on the, the school's fortunes? When Frank Lloyd Wright was commissioned, the school had about 250 students. That's it. It was at 800 students in the Great Depression when the Great Depression hit. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of 1930, it had dropped from 800 to 80. Oof. Dr. Spivey's work, his hard work, had grown the school back up to 250 students. Uh, once again, there were just eight buildings on the grounds. And the school was, aside from the immediate local area, it was, it was very obscure. When uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was commissioned, from the moment that Wright delivered the first drawings, the first plans, Florida Southern College was featured in the New York Times. Hmm. Oh my. Right then and there. <laughs> Once again, every, uh, every time Wright came down, he gave a speech, a public speech on the campus. People came from far and wide. By the time the last of the original grouping of Wright buildings was completed in 1958, we do have one building, the Usonian house that was built later on posthumously. So of our 13. So the original 12, when the last building there, the science building was completed in 1958, the school was at 1,500 students and it was in a greater state of prosperity and notoriety than it had ever had previously. It really did function exactly as Dr. Spivey intended it to. And a lot of that is owed not just to Building Rights Campus, but also to Dr. Spivey and his leadership. He was president of Florida Southern for 32 years, oh 1925 to 1957. He basically devoted his entire career as an educator to the campus. It was a lot, it was his leadership as well, once again, a lot of his advanced educational ideas, the fact that he was a basically a genius level fundraiser as well, uh, that really also pulled the school to that level. Today, the campus is at somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 students in terms of total enrollment and is still prosperous thanks to the foundation that Dr. Spivey laid out. Mm -hmm. Dr. Spivey really and Frank Lloyd Wright together really made Florida Southern into the institution that still is to this day. And it's a it's a tourist attraction too. People come from far and wide to see the the Wright buildings. Uh, yeah, we have uh, we do offer daily guided architectural tours of Frank Lloyd Wright's work. We have I want to say twenty to thirty thousand people a year come to see. Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings. That sounds like a lot, but compared to some other Frank Lloyd Wright sites, it's uh, like Taliesin and Taliesin West, like Falling Water, especially the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not at that level. This is still very much a hidden gem in Wright's work that's only just now kind of starting to be rediscovered by the world at large. It kind of did fade in terms of how, in terms of its notoriety, going into the mid 20th century, which was also kind of just a low point for reverence of and appreciation of Wright's contributions to architecture as a whole. It's just now starting to really kind of come into its own again as 
something that people travel to with the purpose of of just seeing, taking in. And there's a statue of him there too. Tell me, tell me about a little bit about that. Uh, so when the visitor center was completed in 2013, we do have a full full body life size stat, life size statue of Frank Lloyd Wright. It's one of actually only two in existence. The other one's in the town square of Mason City, Iowa, which is where Wright's last surviving hotel design is located. Hmm. So uh, it's right across the street from his last surviving hotel in Mason City. Yeah, we have one of just two life-size full-body statues of Wright that's out there. It's very Instagrammable. I, I have to mention that. Just, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Just, just for the social media folks. <laughs> Speaking of Instagram, before we started the interview, Jack was uh, mentioning his Instagram account at jcoffee, C-O-F-F-E-Y dot arc, A-R-C-H for architecture at jcoffee.arc. I'm going to get away from Frank Lloyd Wright just for a second and ask you about something you mentioned in our pre-interview conversation, that Calatrava building that I'm sure a lot of people traveling on I-4 between Lakeland and, and Orlando, and there's often this field, a building that looks like it has no business being in Central Florida. <laughs> what, what is that building for folks who drive past that and get, what, what, no, there's got to be a story behind that building. Florida Polytechnic University is it is the uh, newest public university in the state of Florida, and they originally reached out to world-renowned contemporary architect Santiago Calatrava for their campus plan, similar to how uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was reached out to by Dr. Spivey. Calatrava is known for kind of his very futuristic, high-tech looking buildings. Uh, his work's often compared to Star Trek. It seemed for an institution that was very, very heavily focused on STEM that he would be the perfect pick. So that is the one building of his design that they have there. Uh, He also did lay out kind of the basic overall layout of the campus itself. But unfortunately, once again, I don't have any formal ties to the Mm. institution. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like the rest of his campus plan past that first building is going to be realized. That one building, though, is... Very, very noteworthy. Yeah, oh, it yeah. definitely is. Yeah, uh, my, my and, kids have compared it to the to the uh, to the uh, spacecraft that the invading uh, aliens use in the Avengers movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see that. I can see yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, Star Trek comparisons abound to uh, Mr. Kalatrava's work as well. He is a very different designer, of course, from Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, yeah. With his buildings <laughs> kind of being very, once again, very futuristic in feel almost kind of skeletal looking, whereas Wright Mm -hmm. are, you know, concrete and wood and very natural feeling as a whole as part of kind of what we touched upon a little bit before. Wright was a practitioner of what he called organic architecture, designing things that were built into nature and really had immense respect towards the pre-existing nature of the space. So, do you think the students uh, there today do they do they appreciate the this architectural gem that they're they're you know lugging their books around and <laughs> and uh, doing homework in? I think that they do uh, a lot. It's kind. It can be sometimes difficult to tell just because students have very busy lives. They're always mm. running around someplace, getting to their next class, getting to meet up with friends somewhere running back to their uh, residence hall, running to go get a bite to eat. The students who I have talked to and taken the time to talk to, there is that appreciation. There is that understanding that these buildings are special and that they are 
unusual, you know, in mm-hmm. a good way, unusual. Mm-hmm. These aren't your typical yeah. college buildings. No, it and, does not have an institutional look at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's even, uh, it doesn't even, I would argue that the grounds don't even really feel like a college around Wright's buildings. He did, I do believe, effectively achieve that kind of park-like, garden-like feel that he was going for, uh, as the grounds are peaceful year-round, regardless of whether students are in classes or not. There definitely is, regardless of the level of knowledge that they might have on the history and the design of the buildings, there definitely is that appreciation and a curiosity from students uh, who kind of want to learn more about the buildings that they're going to school in. Wonderful. Jack Coffey, Frank Lloyd Wright Visitor Center. You can find him there. He leads tour. He's the manager of the tour operation and the educational programs there at Florida Southern College as it relates to Frank Lloyd Wright. Thank you so much for your time today. A fascinating conversation about a a unique gem that Florida has to offer. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth visiting. Thanks again. Thank you all so much. It was a pleasure. Like I mentioned, Craig, having been from Wisconsin, like Frank Lloyd Wright. I've got a couple of interesting facts for you uh, about him. One I think you'll particularly find interesting in, considering your interest in crew crime and noir, Taliesin, his workshop in Florida was the site of a mass murder. Did you know that? In Florida? No, in Wisconsin. Oh, Oh, in Wisconsin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. An extraordinary story there. Uh, Murder in a Prairie House. I forget what the exact name of the book was, but there, a former employee, I want to say, murdered four or five people at Taliesin. His wow. student, Frank Lloyd Wright was gone, but then set fire to the building. It's it's a remarkable story, almost totally lost to history, but the, the true crime people will read that. And then I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts about the history of country music called Cocaine and Rhinestones. And oh, I've heard of that. <laughs> did you know, Craig, George Jones and Tammy Wynette owned a mansion in Lakeland that they spent some time in around 1970. Okay, that I did not know. I did not know that No Show Jones showed up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Something to look into. Yeah, they they at one point while George Jones, the famous country singer, was trying to dry out, uh, mm-hmm. he and Tammy lived there for a period of time because it was away from all his friends in Nashville and the mm-hmm. honky tonk scene. He actually and the temptations. Att- yeah, he actually. <laughs> built an outdoor music venue on the grounds that he hoped to turn into something where his fans could come see him instead of him having to go on the road again with all the temptations. I think they did one show there was a a total fiscal fiasco for, and they just couldn't manage the operation and it wasn't set up for, for big crowds, but something again, I, I don't even know if the building still stands there, but at one point, yeah, George Jones and Tammy went and this is near the peak of their fame, 1970, uh, stand by your man, the whole thing. Uh, they were, they were spending time there in Lakeland. Wow. And yeah, I have to mention also, if you go see Florida Southern college and, and the right buildings, and I have not, taken the tour. I've driven through campus, but haven't gotten out and spent a lot of time there. I have spent a good deal of time at the Polk Museum of Art, which is right there adjacent to the campus, a really ambitious and uh, exhibition program that punches far above its weight. You know, check out the Polk Museum of Art while you're there on the on on the campus. This is just illustrates a point I try to make almost every time I write stuff about Florida, which is 
people think they know Florida. They think they know, oh, it's, you know, beaches and theme parks and that's Mm -hmm. all there is to it. And that's, that's not true. There's so many of these hidden gems all around and they're there if you just look for them and keep your eyes open. And I encourage people to go out and not just tour the, the, the right buildings, visit the museum of art, but, you know, look out for stuff that's in your own backyard too, that maybe, maybe you don't know about yet, but it's just waiting for you. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida.